This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we continue our journey through the silent years and the context of Jesus' ministry, examining the fourth group we have introduced ourselves to, the Zealots. Yeah. Journeying our way through the five responses to Hellenism. Little review. But before we do that, we got an introduction to make. We, we seem to have a pretty strong theme in session three of having guests yes, on the podcast. Absolutely. Not only that, our first female guest, we should have done this a long time ago, long overdue, three sessions in before we get a female guest in here. Your first overall disciple. Yeah. So let me tell you a little about, we got Megan Marie Gambino here in the house. Say hi, Megan. Hello. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about who Megan is, a little bit about who Megan was, a little bit about who Megan is. How about that? little introduction here. I'm nervous to see what this is going to sound like. Let me tell you who Megan is. Megan is an incredible mom to a son named Josiah, wife to husband Chris, both of them Bayma Trip 2014 alumni. She is a administrator extraordinaire for a clothing company. She is uh she is what would you what would you call it? she is starting her own nonprofit. She is an artiste. She does these really cool themed drawings. My uh, family had her do all of our family portraits. We typically get your usual family portrait with a photo. You're a photographer, Brent. You can appreciate that. Sure. This time around, though, we had uh, we had Megan draw our family portraits. They were phenomenal. Which, for the record, I appreciate that, too. Yes, absolutely. So you could check out our website. What do we got here? What's your website, Megan? Tell us. Reconfigureart.com. Reconfigureart.com. Which, of course, fantastic. will be in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely, in the show notes. Tell us a bit about, uh, just give us a snapshot of what this is. Is it just like a place to just buy art? So, yes, it's a place to buy art. Custom family portraits, custom senior portraits, custom baby announcements, whatever kind of custom art you want. But additionally, with any purchase, I give free art for you to give away to any lonely individual that you might come across. Whether that is a person on the street a person that is elderly, a person with disabilities that can't get out of their house, those type of things. I'm just trying to bridge the gap between the lonely. Ooh, it's good. I hear some strong Bema themes in that. It's fantastic. It's really just a Jesus theme. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, let me tell you about, about who uh, Megan was. Megan was my first real true disciple <laughs> in this whole adventure of Bema discipleship. Uh, when I ever talk about Megan, this is the Megan that I reference. Megan was an apprentice with Impact Campus Ministries, as she was my disciple. Megan was a full-time staff member with Impact Campus Ministries here on the Palouse, Palouse team. Megan was, what else were you with us? Let me tell you who Megan is. Megan is currently the chairperson of Impact Campus Ministries on the board of directors serving us in that way. So, fantastic to have Megan with us. Something about who she is. Anything else you need to add to that, Megan? Go Cougs. Go Cougs. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yes. I, I did not see that coming. Me neither neither really. did I, I but didn't. that was really good. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, uh, we have a presentation today just to help. There'll be a few photos at some point. We'll get to them like we have in the last few podcasts. So you can, if you're using your show notes, you can pull those up. Just to give you a heads up that is there and coming. Let's review just real 
briefly here. Let's see if I can put Megan on the spot. Oh, no. Yeah. Megan's been through Bema a couple times. Been on the trip. Tell me about Hellenism, Megan. We need to review Hellenism. Tell me about what it is, what it was. Hellenism was when mankind put man in the center of the universe and everything became about me. That's right. Man is a measure of all things, Pythagoras said. Um so that, that was Hellenism. And so there was lots of different responses to this because this seems to some of us to run counter to the biblical narrative. Like it can't be all about me because we said this whole thing, empire and shalom. Uh, Brent, what did we say about empire? Empire was a narrative of? Of uh, self-preservation. And shalom? Self-sacrifice? Yeah, yeah self-sacrifice. Megan's on it. Boom. Got it. Self-preservation and self-sacrifice. So when you look at those two things and you see Hellenism, uh, you would think, boy, that sounds pretty imperial to me. Of course, not all people in the Jewish world saw it that way. And so we've been kind of going on a little journey, a little tour, if you will, through the different responses to Hellenism in Judaism. And the first one we went over, Brent, what was it? The first Sadducees. Group. Sadducees, right? Oh, this yes. group of almost like a, a corrupt Jewish mafia that ran the temple system. They had a maybe a maybe a brother group that saw the world in some similar, at least saw Hellenism in a similar light, which was, wasn't a threat to the biblical narrative. And that group was? The Herodians. Herodians. Mm. And then we had some priests that uh, didn't want to be at all a part of this corrupt priestly system, didn't want to be a part of the Sadducees. Uh, some of them still served in the temple, but some of them went off into the desert, and we called them, and Megan? The Essenes. The Essenes. So those are the three groups we've talked about. So we've got two more groups to cover. We're going to cover group number four. Today we're going to talk about the Zealots. So a little background. We already kind of touched on this in our podcast on kind of the history and of Hellenism. But um, just to give us some background about where we're coming from here, uh, after the um, Seleucids took over uh, in the area, um, and then eventually there was a king, his name was Antiochus. That was the one, the Seleucid king that eventually laid uh, siege to Jerusalem, uh, conquered Jerusalem, took over the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar and ignited the story of Hanukkah, the revolt, Judah Maccabee, Judah the Hammer. And they revolted against the Seleucids led by Antiochus, and they overthrew them miraculously in this eight-day um, this eight-day war. Uh, that's what the story of Hanukkah remembers. And so after that, if you remember, what did we say, what did we say the, this zealot group did after they conquered the Greeks, Brent? Well, they turned the the kingdom over to the priesthood. Absolutely. They turned the kingdom over to the priesthood. So uh, just a little bit about this group. Um, uh, they're a passionate group of freedom fighters, you could think of them. Uh, they're going to be a part of a group that we're going to call the Hasidim or the Hasidim. Uh, you'll hear them called. The Hasidim was, um, we, we have the first three groups, and, and in a sense, similar to the Essenes, if the Essenes rejected this worldview and went off into the desert, there was another group with a slightly different worldview. They weren't a priestly group, and they weren't going to be this highly separatist group. Um, but there was this other group that went north to settle north, and that group was known as the Hasidim, which means pious ones in Hebrew, and they go to settle up north. And so this this group is a mem- is one of two groups that make up the Hasidim. Um, the other ones we'll look at in the next podcast. They're going to be known as the Pharisees. will be the group that we're missing still. Um, but the Zealots were a member of the Hasidim, and the priests became Hellenistic, and the Hasidim head north with a group of remnant returners to the Galilee. 
Um, there were two groups that made up the Hasidim. The Pharisees, we've looked at already, and the Zealots were the other group to take violent action. They were known as the Kanaim. So the Kanaim, Kana is the Hebrew word for zeal. If you need a word for zeal, it'd be the word Kana. Shows up in the scripture where God says, I am a jealous God. Uh, the word has, has almost like a romantic overtone. It's a word used for the jealousy of a lover. And so God, when God talks about he's a jealous God, I don't know if that's ever been confusing. Has that ever been confusing? Megan, Brent, to you. And God says, I'm a jealous God. And our thought is, well, hey, I thought we weren't supposed to be jealous. How come God gets to be jealous? Oh, never thought about that. I mean, I guess I've thought about it, but it, it makes sense. It seems like God can do that. Yeah. So this, so his his wording that he uses there is this jealousy, um, not of the not of envy. It's not an envy, jealous. It's a it's a lover, a passionate zeal that a lover has for his his bride or or her husband, and that that zeal is known as kana in the Hebrew. So you had the kanaim, which were the zealots, um, and they they were based off of of that world. And Phineas, we know him as Phineas. Hebrew will know him as Pinhas. Um, Pinhas was their poster child. Megan, you have the passage. Passage in Numbers 25. Context of this is when Moab, uh, this is after the story of uh, Balaam and his donkey, and then Balak is asking Balaam to curse Israel. And of course, Balaam won't curse Israel. He will only bless Israel. And then right after that, Moab and the women of Moab come and seduce the Israelites, and that's where the story appears. So, Megan, go ahead and read us a short little snippet of Pinhas. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through their belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Okay, so Moab comes in and seduces Israel, and there's a story of this um, couple, an Israelite man and this uh, um Man, does it specify her in another place as not just a Moabite, but a but a Cushite? I can't remember. Now I'm... A Midianite. Midianite? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Um, and, uh, and, and they're um, having intercourse right in front belly of the... Belly to belly, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ha, ha, yeah, having intercourse right in the entrance of the tabernacle, which would, would fit a pagan practice. She was at a pagan temple. That's where a lot of those... Um, sexual pagan acts are going to take place at the entrance of the tabernacle. So you can see this mixture of two different worldviews. And and Pinhas is so uh, appalled at this that he rises and he grabs a spear and he pins them to the ground. And later on in the passage, God is going to go on to say, um, he, he, he's, he looks favorably on Pinhas because he says at least somebody was going to do something about what was happening in the Lord's house. Uh, zeal for his house consumed him, which you're going to recognize as a reference in the Gospels. We'll deal with that later in our time together in session three. Um, but that w- that ended up being the poster child for the zealots. Um, a lot of times when we look at the zealots, it's easy to throw them under the bus. Um, and, and we have to remind ourselves that there was plenty of biblical material for them to feel justified in the way that they approached what they did. Um, another one of their poster children would be... Uh, can you think of anybody else, Brent, we've looked at, or Megan, that we've looked at? Any other figure that was full of 
chutzpah in Tanakh. Yeah. Elijah. Ooh, Elijah. Okay. So Elijah would be our other character that the zealots would look at and go, yeah, the fire and the passion, the wrath of Elijah. And so um, that would be the poster children of this this movement that drove their worldview. And so obviously once the Brent, Brent just told us that once they got control of the land, they handed it over to a priesthood that within 20 years had become completely Hellenistic and corrupt. And so throughout that entire century of the Hasmonean dynasty, the zealots were this, um, they had obviously bought into this myth of redemptive violence. They were, they were like, um, well, in our, in our kind of media world today, we would call them insurgents. They were, they were, terrorists in in essence they would um, go after uh, what they saw as religious corruption and they would try to one of the descendants of the high priestly family um, was actually murdered a zealot went into the temple courts and went into the temple courts and murdered the the sitting high priest um, uh, stabbed him to death in the in the temple courts um, this was who they were and so they would run these and we kind of know how this culturally we can relate to this because um, man, when we were over in the Middle East and we're always over in the Middle East doing war somewhere, but remember when we were in, uh, talking Iraq and it seemed like every week you would, you would open up the newspaper, you would jump online and there'd be an, another IED that would go off an explosive device that would take the lives of a couple of soldiers. This would be the kind of news that you would hear about in Rome, uh, as these zealots would pick off another Roman soldier. One of the, one of the sects of the zealots was known as the Sicari and the Sicari were known for their dagger called the Sicar that they would hide up their sleeve. This will actually come back in the gospels as well. Um, and some of these, uh, the Sicari were known as, as a, a sect that took an oath that if they ever found a Roman soldier on his own, uh, he would not leave a living Roman soldier. He would not leave that area alive. Uh, this was, this was the oath, the worldview that they belonged to. And so, they they sat and harassed and attacked this ha- this Hasmonean dynasty in different ways for an entire century, and then in, in forty seven BC, we talked about how the um, how the Hasmoneans went off and arranged for a particular marriage to a particular king, so that they could have some political weight because Rome had just taken over the area. Can anybody remember who that who this character is we're speaking about? There is a Nabataean Idumean king that they're going off to make a deal with. Well, Herod. Herod the Great, right? And so in 47, they they go and they approach Herod the Great to make this deal, um, to make this arrangement that he could come be the Jewish king. Uh, and, and Rome backs the decision two years later in 45 BC. So in 47, they go to Herod, they make the, they make the deal. 45 BC, uh, Julius Caesar backs the deal that was made and actually throws his support behind it. And then two years after that, in 43 BC, there's a zealot by the name of Hezekiah that is so appalled at this agreement, um, because Herod is, is a pagan king. Like they just, the priesthood has just went and married one of their priestly daughters, uh, a Jewish princess, you could think of it, um, to Herod in order to kind of ratify this marriage. There's some historian debate, uh, historical debate about whether or not Herod's grandmother was Jewish. I'm not sure at this point in history how much that even impacts the conversation, but the zealots were not having this. They they had just went and made an arrangement with a pagan king. And so in 43, Hezekiah the zealot uh, leads a revolt, which is unsuccessful. And the zealots essentially get driven up north to the Galilee where they, where they settle. 
um, Hezekiah was captured in Magdala, and the group kind of scatters from Magdala and and continues their um, insurgency, if you will, from that location. So on your presentation there, you have some pictures that show up. Uh, the first the first picture there, this, these are known as the Caves of Arbel. Um, so if you ever go to the Galilee and you get to uh, walk to the bottom of Mount Arbel, which is really one of two, only two kind of a, uh, a canyon that that runs just uh, to the almost immediate direct west of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there are two peaks there. Uh, on both sides of this canyon, on both sides of this ridge, there are these caves that go all throughout um, the canyon there. Next picture shows you the other side of the ridge. And, and you have to look really closely, but if you look closely, you'll notice all the caves are in the side there. These insurgents, Rome would come after, Herod the Great would come after uh, these insurgents and, and mount all these campaigns to crush the zealot movements. And so one of the things that they would do, the, the next slide there, you actually see um, just some more of those caves. These, these zealot movements would um, basically have to protect their women and children because Rome would come and try to crush their villages. Uh, at first, they didn't. At first, they were just looking for the men, the militant um, zealot men who were actually committing the crimes. But these men would run away every time Rome would, Rome would show up. And so Rome's tactic became, well, if you're just going to run away, we're going to start to hurt your women and your children. And so what the zealots did was they took their women and children and hid them in the caves of Arbel. Well, history will tell us. I believe it's a reference to Josephus, but I would have to check. History will tell us that Rome caught wind of this. And they went to Arbel and they set up scaffolding on the the front cliff face that you're looking at in those pictures. Uh, in front of all those caves, they lit fires and blew the smoke into the cave so that everybody that was hiding inside had to come out. And they grabbed them with long pitchforks and threw them off the scaffolding to their death. Um, this was This was the relationship that the zealots had with Rome. This is on some level, where the myth of redemptive violence always kind of leaves us. And so once once they had to leave Arbel, they really have to choose a place to really settle. And the zealot movement is slowly, slowly, slowly dying. Um, some of you might know the story of Masada, and we won't do a whole lot with Masada here until we talk Herod the Great. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about Masada. But Masada will be their ultimate last stand. But in essence, their second to last stand uh, was at a place called Gamla. And we'll, we'll have a podcast where we look at a map and, and enjoy this a little bit better. But Gamla sits just off the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And your next picture there shows a picture of Gamla. Gamla means camel. And if you look at the hill from the side, not how your photo is oriented, but if you were to look at it from basically perpendicular to where you are looking at it, it looks like a camel, uh, the shape of it. And so made for a really good fortress. As you can see, it would be very hard just to run up and scale that mountain. And so they built all their homes into uh, terraces on that hillside. And, um, and, and, and you see a picture of Gamla there. The next picture there shows a close-up of the synagogue. It's, uh, it's actually the, once Gamla was destroyed, it was never rebuilt. Um, uh, we'll talk about its destruction here in a moment. But that is the synagogue that, one of the interesting passages in the scriptures that talks about Jesus going to all the towns of the Galilee and teaching in their synagogues. Uh, if that's true, you have to ask yourself if you went to zealot compounds and zealot, because if that's true, that is the synagogue, like the literal synagogue that would be, there's no rebuilding there. There's no, there wasn't a second synagogue that would have been the synagogue that Jesus would have stood in if he came and taught in all 
of the towns and villages in Galilee. That's where Jesus would have been. Um, but this is where the zealots came and settled. So um, let's see, what's our next picture there? Yeah, that's a good picture to to actually sit on while I tell some of the backstory and the history here. Um, the zealots, uh, let's see here. Uh, so they come to settle in Gamla. Uh, there are other bands of zealots in other places. I don't mean to insinuate that every single zealot that existed lived at Gamla, but this is one of their last stands here at Gamla. Um, there was about nine to 10,000 zealots that lived uh, in Gamla by the time Rome laid siege to it. Uh, there was even a band of zealots in Egypt, and in fact, it's referenced in the book of Acts. And Megan, you have another passage. This one is from the uh, book of Acts chapter 5, and the Sanhedrin is wrestling with this early church movement. Um, and and Gamaliel is going to stand up and, and address the Sanhedrin and listen to what he says here in Acts chapter 5. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held and honored by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were displaced and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the day of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Um, There's a reference to Paul later in the book of Acts, and somebody talks about Paul and says, weren't you the zealot from Egypt in reference to this same uh, group? And so we see the Bible referencing the zealots in lots and lots of different places. Um, But essentially what happens for this picture that you're looking at with Gamla is in AD 66, uh, this this is obviously after Jesus, um, but I wanted to tell the story because it gives us an understanding of who the zealots are. In AD 66, there's a revolt right outside of Caesarea. Um, Rome decides to come uh, put statues. They're going to put statues of Caesar in the temple. Uh, And a whole bunch of Pharisees actually go out to meet the ships as they sail into Caesarea. And they lay in the road. Um, uh, And it just causes all these tensions to rise. Eventually, there's a revolt outside of Caesarea. Uh, prior to this, Florus had been governor, and he was particularly brutal. Uh, he had once slaughtered 3,500 men, women, and children uh, in, a, in a city square. So at this point at the revolt, tensions are incredibly high. Uh, the Jews of Caesarea mounted a revolt after being offended during Passover. Um, they were having a Passover celebration. Some of the Greeks there, uh, they didn't feel like we're being respectful. Somebody ends up throwing a rock, and a huge revolt breaks out. Uh, 20,000 Jews were executed in the countryside. That's a big number. 20,000 Jews are executed. Is that like the WCU population of undergrads? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, almost, almost. It's a little, it's a little uh, higher than that. But yeah, that's uh, absolutely a sizable university. Uh, student body, absolutely. 20,000 Jews executed in the countryside. Uh, this lit a match and there was a revolution. A Roman legion found themselves trapped in a fortress in Jerusalem uh, so in Jerusalem, the Jews then trap uh, the Romans in the Antonio Fortress. A lot of people know about the Antonio Fortress. They get, they, they, the Romans there negotiate a settlement with the zealots. Um, the zealots agree to let them march out of the city to safety if they lay down their arms. But as soon as they lay down their arms, the zealots slaughter every Roman soldier in the Antonio Fortress. This gives you an idea of, of who they are. So in response to that, it's starting to sound like Samson. 
hmm. in the Samson story in the Book of Judges. In response to that, Vespasian is going to assemble 35,000 troops in Damascus. Okay, that's just north, northeast of the region of the Galilee. 35,000 troops he gets together. In this 35,000 troops are three different Roman legions of, of special mention. One of them is the 10th Roman legion. If anybody knows the Roman history, these names are going to ring a bell. The 10th Roman legion is, think about them as we think about the Marines. Like they're the first ones in, they're strategic, they're precise. That's the 10th Roman legion. They had the 12th Roman legion. Uh, they were known for their engineering prowess. So they're like the problem solvers. Like they're like the nerdy Roman legion, like they can figure out how to solve problems and build cool things. Um, and then, and then the 15th Roman legion is all was known for their, their brutality and their veracity. Like they were one of the most, they were just known for how brutal they were in war. And so they are included in this 35,000 troops that Vespasian assembles at Damascus. Um, and yet somehow, <laughs> somehow this, uh, Roman army falls in the North to this Jewish zealot band led by a guy by the name of Joseph. So so the zealots at this point after Hezekiah are led by a guy named Joseph and they manage to hold back and beat back 35,000 trained Roman soldiers. Like it is hard to imagine how this is. We know it's true historically. It's just hard to imagine. This is the kind of fire and zeal that the zealots had, that they were, that the story of Hanukkah was possible. That they're able to actually stand against the Ro- the most trained, most powerful Roman army, uh, the most powerful army on the globe at that point in human history, and somehow actually hold a candle to what's taking place. Um, it, that is the zeal. That gives you a picture of, of who they are. Now, eventually, uh, eventually uh, Rome is able to push them back to Gamla. Gamla is that second to last stand. Uh, Joseph tells... Um, tells the, the residents of Gamla, the zealots that are living in Gamla, Joseph tells them how to fortify. Uh, he then goes out to fight Vespasian and eventually gets caught in the Galilee. Um, now, history here becomes a little muddy and we don't know exactly what happens. Um, but Vespasian will eventually adopt Joseph. The zealot leader Joseph will be adopted by, Ves- by Vespasian as a son, and history is going to know him as Josephus, Flavius. So when we talk about the historian Josephus, we are talking about the exact same Josephus that that led the zealot movement all through this entire rampage against the Romans. Um, and he ends up being the historian. And so there's a lot of Jewish thought that sees Josephus, the great historian, as a major traitor. Um, because all history wants to know, how do you go from being the number one enemy of the Roman Empire to being adopted by the emperor? Well, the that reason we're showing like, you this. This seems like a bigger deal than like a tax collector. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. This is huge. And so history wants to know. Well, most historians are going to say, well, it's obvious. So looking at that picture that you have there on the presentation that we stopped at, um, they are trying to lay siege to Gamla. Uh, let's see. I think I have the dates here. Um, they are, they are laying siege. I, I can't remember how long that they have been laying siege. Uh, and, and they've just had no luck, uh, come to Israel. We'll talk more and more and more about how they laid siege here, but they're having no luck, uh, penetrating the fort, the, the fortifications of Gamla and then out of nowhere. So part of what Josephus told them to do at Gamla is he said, we talked about this with casemate housing. Was that, uh, session one, Brent, we talked about casemate housing. 
Uh, let's see, when did that come up? That would have been like David, probably. Uh, I think David my, and Solomon. I can't remember if it was there or if it was earlier when we talked about uh, city gates. Uh, but anyway, we talked know. about casemate housing, and we said that one of the reasons that you would do casemate housing is because if your city comes under attack, what do you do with the homes, Brent? You fill them up. You fill them up with stone. So your wall goes from like, I don't know, eight feet thick to 30 feet thick because all the homes that are built into the city wall get filled with stones. That's exactly what they did to Gamla. But one of the things that you did strategy-wise was there was always one home that you left empty. So there was one home in the wall that wasn't filled with stone, and you did this because if you ever got the opportunity where you needed to flank the enemy while they were laying siege to the city, you could break through that empty house and flank around them, and it was just a, an option that you had as a military strategy. In Gamla, there was one house that had been left empty. And after months and months and months of not being able to lay siege to Gamla, Rome walked right up and punched a hole right in the wall. And Brent has marked it on that photo there. You can see the hole in the wall, the breach, where they went right up and punched through into the empty house. Now, some people, some historians say, well, everybody gets lucky. They just picked a good spot and they found the one house. Most historians are going to say Josephus told them exactly where to go. And that's how he, he essentially sold out and saved his life by giving Rome the information they needed to put down the zealot movement. And Vespasian ends up adopting him as a son. That's how most history is going to see it. Now, even in light of this, uh, they, they breach the wall there. They create that hole in the wall in June. They are not able to enter the city until October. That, that is stunning to me. That they're able to breach the city wall and still, just like we talked about with city gates, this breach in the wall is still hard to get all your soldiers through because now you just start defending that hole in the wall like you would defend a city gate. Um, and they're able to hold for months uh, outside of Gamla. Eventually, as far as history tells it, um, there is a lookout on one of the towers outside of Gamla. In fact, if you look on that picture there that you're looking at, um, you can see up in the kind of the corner of the wall uh, up there on the right, you can see like one example of a tower that's still, you can see the remnants of the tower sit, sitting there. One of the lookouts in the tower looks down and thinks that he sees a Roman in the city. Um, historians don't know if there was a, like maybe a, a lone Roman that had gotten in. But but most history would say they hadn't actually penetrated the wall. They don't know if the lookout saw something, thought he saw a Roman, but he starts shouting, the Romans are in the city, the Romans are in the city. Uh, and so what happens is everybody inside of Gamla runs to the backside of Gamla. And if you look at your, uh, your next photo there, they jump off the back of the fortress to their death, committing suicide. Um, 9,000 Jews are there when they began laying siege. 4,000 Jews died in the in the fighting, and 5,000 Jews jumped to their own death rather than be conquered uh, by the Romans. Um, and so all of this story, and we could just kind of keep talking about the cool history that surrounds Gamla, uh, Masada, those kind of things. But what I really want to do is do, spend just enough time in the history so that we could appreciate who the Zealots were. Um, and I have some closing thoughts that I'll close with, but I wanted to ask Megan, she's our guest here today. Megan, do you relate to the zealots? Do you have any thoughts about zealots? I'm asking this because I know I know who Megan is deep down inside. Uh, so I do have a lot of thoughts 
about the zealots. However, I don't think we have that kind of time. So I'm just going to limit my thoughts to um, my personal relationship with zealotry, I guess you can call it. I'm so make that word up. Am I hearing you say you relate to the zealots? I would say I relate to the zealots. I think I used to relate a lot more to the zealots. Okay. Um, I'm thinking of back when I was a young disciple of Marty Solomon's. Yes. And we would be driving to meetings. Yes. And I would be venting, basically, just venting to Marty about different things that I was noticing and seeing within church or ministry. And I would be so frustrated. And I remember Marty telling me about the fire, the fire that I have. This passion is so good, but you might need to let your flames die a little bit so that they're burning embers because the flames were burning people. But if I had my embers stoked, then I could still have that low grade fire without consuming others. And so that's pretty good stuff. Yeah, I might have, maybe I made it better over the years. I think you probably did. I don't know if that, if I said something (laughs) that great. You might've said something. I think we were passing Sherry's in Moscow when that was (laughs) happening. Um, But I think for me, I, I definitely had a lot more fiery zeal, um, but my passion has never dwindled. My passion for God's story, my passion for loving people, my passion for the oppressed, um, especially in, you know, like the clothing industry is like my main target that I'm passionate about right now. Um, Those things have never died out, but I think the way that I engaged others about those things have been what have changed. Um, I used to be very passionate and zealous about those topics, and I just learned that people weren't willing to to hear and be changed if I was angry about it. I had to channel my what really to me was just sorrow for other people into something that others could relate to and engage and own rather than just being too hot to handle. Yeah. And that really, man, I've learned a lot about zealots. So with every single group that we've been going through, we're trying to identify the pro and the con. Every group we said brings something to the table and every single group has something that they have to be challenged by. And for me, the zealots were kind of like the Sadducees, like really easy to identify what the wrong was. Mm -hmm. And I had a really hard time appreciating the zealot group in my progressive liberal academia i was just i was so like well obviously the the con is that they've given into the myth of redemptive violence they're like killing people and that's not the way of the kingdom and and obviously that is the con but i had a i I almost had like this disdain for the zealot Mm. worldview and there's two things i've learned um in the last decade dealing with with other people who who are like zealots and just continue to study um one of them, I can remember being two stories. <clears throat> I, w- I was with Ray at Gamla learning this lesson for the first time. Actually, I, it was the second time we were learning this lesson. And we were coming back down from Gamla, and I thought I had gotten this all figured out. Like I had thought, I'd, you know, still, it's just so stupid. And I was walking right behind Ray, kind of an odd, I'm usually not right behind Ray, but I was walking right behind. So I thought I was going to say something to really impress him. I'm like, man, I can't believe these, I can't believe these zealots would. Stupid zealots. I made some comment about stupid zealots. Ray whipped around and grabbed my shirt by the collar. He said, you just had a daughter, right? I'm like, yeah, her name's Abigail. He said, do you know what they're going to do to Abigail when they get through that city wall? Do you know the things that they're going to do to your family, to your wife, to your children? Do you know the things they're going to do to you, but more importantly, to the people that you love? Mm -hmm. He said, "Uh, if, if we had a true appreciation for the oppression of Rome... I'm not sure I wouldn't be the first one off the cliff, he said. Mm. 
And I thought, man, that... so, and then later, I remember it was my second trip, our, our, our most recent trip, Bema trip. And I had uh, one of our participants come uh, and I was, I was just wrestling out loud with how much I struggled with the zealot movement and how they could just justify and commit suicide so easily. And, uh, and she called me out, uh, not in front of everybody. She, let, she, she pulled me aside as we were walking down the hill and she said, maybe if, if you knew what, what it was like to be abused every day mm. of your life, and she had this long history with abuse, if you knew what it was like to be abused, to be taken advantage of every single day for year upon year upon year, don't ever speak ill of this group of people that had decided that this was their faithful response. So I've learned a lot. I'm still learning because I still don't think I have it all nailed down in my head, but I'm learning to have much more respect. And, the, and which leads me to my last thing. And, and Megan just, I mean, she nailed it when she was talking about her own perspective. And that is that God has to have zealots. When Jesus calls his disciples, he's going to call at least two of them who are zealots. Um, Judas Iscariot, we'll talk about him later. And and uh, Simon the Zealot. And, and he's going to call others that have these zealot tendencies. Like we see Peter chopping somebody's ear off. Like even the, even the people that lived in the Galilee, um, they would have had sympathies. Like they would have been sympathetic, especially these young disciples. They would have been sympathetic to this zealot worldview. Um, Jesus and God need Elijah's. Like they need zealots because they're the ones that are going to get stuff done. Uh, the zealot is the only one that's going to have the zeal to actually get in there and do something, not just study the text, not run off to the desert, not, and yes, we need to make sure that we're using the right weapons and doing it God's way. Like we need to use the weapons of love and of mercy and compassion, but we need some zeal behind those kingdom, um, operations. Like we, we need somebody that's going to get in there and have the zeal to lay their life down, sometimes literally lay their life down on behalf of other people. Um, the early church is going to be full of this kind of zeal, and I just never gave it enough credit. So as we close this conversation, if there's any of you out there who find yourself a little zealous, a little Judah Maccabee-like, then then just know that there is definitely a place in the Havara for you. Like there is definitely a place in the kingdom. There's definitely a place in the church. Uh I think of all the work I do with college students. I hope there are some zealots out there who are college students that are going to be a part of impacting the world, being a part of changing things like the church and corporations and institutions and just the world of empire that is all around us. If we think we're going to do that by just being an Essene, my favorite group, uh, it ain't going to happen. If we think we're going to do that by just being a Pharisee and getting stuff right, if, they, if we think we're going to do that, like we're going to need zealots if we're going to fix this thing. Like we're going to need zealots if we're going to impact the you impact the world. Um, that is going to be an absolute must. So know, know that you bring something to the table. I feel, like, I feel like we should end at uh, Numbers 25 where we started. Oh, I like it. So right after Pinos runs the spear through the two people, the Lord said to Moshe, Pinos, son of Eleazar, the son of Aharon, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. It's good stuff. 
I mean, obviously thing. there's a conversation, but man, apparently, apparently there was something there that God says. His heart has a lot in common with my heart right now. Yeah, that's good. It's good. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Megan. Yes, you're so welcome. People can find you. Uh, I hear you're not on Twitter. The tweetless Megan Sorry. Gambino, but she she does have an Instagram that she would like you to check out. It is uh, me Gambino, M E G A M B I N O. Check it out on Instagram. It's a great follow. I've heard. Check out that website, reconfigureart.com. Yep, it's great stuff. Yeah, plenty of ways to get a hold of Megan. Uh, me and Marty, we just like Twitter. We're kind of old stodgies like that, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> so that's how we roll. So I'm at EIBCB. Marty is, of course, at Marty Solomon. And you can find more details about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. <sighs> what, what did you just say? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so distracted right now. <laughs> that will be a part that gets edited out. Yeah. <laughs>